Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Brandon Mull, the author of 15 New York Times bestselling books. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author. His books have been translated into over 30 languages. His newest book is Dragon Watch, Wrath of the Dragon King. Brandon is an advocate for literacy, and he spends four months a year touring the world, going to schools, and talking about literacy. Really interested to talk to him today about teenagers and reading and writing, and also about getting teenagers to express themselves in other ways. All that and more. Brandon, thank you so much for making the time to be here. My pleasure. Happy to be here with you. I have read a copy of this book here, Wrath of the Dragon King. Oh, yeah, the newest one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. And then I've also been told that you're a big advocate into literacy. For sure. Yes. It's the doing some good part of my job. Okay. All right. So can we talk a little bit just about this? Now, this is the Fable Haven series, but you've been doing this for a while. Like, how does this fit into kind of like the course of your writing career here? Yeah, well, my writing career started with Fablehaven. Okay. Fablehaven is a five-book series about a brother and sister who discover their grandparents are the caretakers of a secret wildlife park for magical creatures. Right. And then I wrote that from 2006 to 2010. Mm. And after I finished that, it was a five-book series. I was writing a book a year. After I finished it, um, some years later... I saw an opportunity to return to that same story world and those same main characters and create a whole new adventure for them, which will be the five Dragon Watch books. Okay, I gotcha. As I tour the country, sharing my books with people, one of the main things I try to do is get kids reading and creating. The primary way I do that is through assemblies. I've visited over 2,000 schools around the country and sometimes around the world. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, and I kind of work like a cheerleader for reading and <laughs> literacy and stuff. Yeah. Okay, so then are we talking about like elementary schools, like public schools kind of? Or I mean, how do you like set all this up? Upper grade elementary is the most frequent. Yeah, okay. And then next would be middle school and next would be high school. And ah. I do visit all those schools. Probably... 95% of the visits I do are at no cost. Ah. Occasionally, uh, a big private school or a public school with some great funding or an international school will book me to come for an extended period of time and teach workshops. And that's usually when I'm getting paid. But otherwise, it tends to be when I'm out on book tour and those visits are all free. And I've, I've been touring for my books for the past 13 years or so probably averaging about four months a year on tour, 
which is wow. way more than most authors. It's an uncommon amount of school visits I've done. Wow, that's really cool, though. And so I would be interested in a few things like what you've noticed kind of the differences are. I mean, you you must kind of change your presentation when you go to high schools versus going to middle schools versus going to elementary schools. So I wonder like what you focus on and what have you found are kind of like things that kind of resonate with teenagers about literacy? Yeah, that's a great question. I I talk about the same principles no matter where I go, but it's all about how I talk about those principles that changes, mm. right? When I'm, when I'm talking to an older audience or a younger audience. Um, high school, I, I try to do a feel that's more like almost like career day, like a window <laughs> into what it's like being a writer. That's more interesting, I think, to them than me saying like, reading's fun or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's something like aspirational. Uh, we just had David Allen on the show recently, who's like this big productivity guy. Yeah. He started this thing called getting things done. That's like all about kind of creating these like lists and getting things out of your head and onto paper. But one thing he said that I thought was really cool was that, you know, hey, these lists are like buffets, you know, it's like the more stuff you can get written down, then the more options you have. And just how important it is at this age to have more options. And so that's kind of cool, like to go in and show them what you do, you know, and this option. Yeah. You know, for sure, I think the the older high school kids, they want anecdotes and stories. They want you to be very real and very human with them. And as you do that, that tends to make them open up and listen a little more. Hmm. And then I still talk about, I mean, some of the core principles I talk about is that, you know, as we read for fun, that inherently makes our imaginations more powerful. That process of visualizing a story and engaging with the story in that way. Hmm. And uh, I talk about that from elementary to middle to high school, but the way I talk about it varies. In high school, I talk about how life gets really busy and you, you stop reading for fun because you've got so many activities, right? Or you stop maybe doing your creative hobbies, creative hobbies that you might have loved as an elementary yeah. school kid or a middle school kid. It's, it starts start to fade often in high school. I mean, one simple experiment that's amazing is I'll often ask the kids about what they what they do for fun and when i say like who likes to draw or doodle in upper grade elementary it's like you know 80 percent of the hands go up ah yeah yeah if you take that to middle school it's like 40 percent of the hands and if you take it to high school it's like 10 percent of the hands you know mm. one of my theories is that by the time you get to high school people realize if they have a real talent there or not and so they don't want to say it unless they feel they have a real talent there yeah, it's like that they're not good at it or something. So we start yeah. to like judge ourselves that like, oh, I, I shouldn't like really be making a big deal about that thing because I'm not really that good at it. So yeah, sort of like an American Idol syndrome. Like, yeah. you know, as if you, you can't just sing for fun, you got to be like, you know, radio ready or you shouldn't sing, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's, I, I think that's a disservice, of course, to, to everybody because it's just fun to sing, just to be goofy and sing, even if you're not the best, you know, and just like it can be fun to draw or, or to do art or to express yourself creatively in ways that you may not be an expert at. How do we raise kids that are a little more fearless? Because it's hard, right? It's like we don't want them doing like fearless in reckless ways, but creatively, 
we do want them to take risks, you know? Yes. So how do we encourage them to take the right kind of risks? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it, it's, it's a great thought. You know, I, I, I'm trying to keep reading for fun alive. Yeah. So one of the things I'll do is, is just try to make a, a logical case for it kind of, you know, w- one of the things I'll say is, you know, have you ever read a story and kind of seen that story like a movie in your head and then gone to the movie theater to see the movie someone made of that story and been disappointed. Mm. And they will say, you know, almost everybody by the time they're in high school is like, yeah, that's happened to me. You know, Yeah, yeah, totally, right. As long as they're literate. As long as they've read at least like 10 books and yeah, seen a few Yeah, movies. yeah, as long as they've read like something, right? <laughs> yeah, or can read. Like, you know, most people yeah. have had that experience. <laughs> and then you take that experience and take it kind of one more step and explain that once you can recognize that Sometimes the story is better in your own head. You're having the empowering realization that your own imagination can create a better story sometimes than a famous Hollywood director with an enormous budget. Right, than a $200 million movie. And and as you make that realization, hopefully the connection that follows is, oh yeah, I should be reading for fun or I'm missing out on using the theater of my mind to make cooler stuff than directors are trying to throw at me. Mm. I, I try to teach or suggests that reading rewards you for being smart and rewards you for being creative as you visualize the story in your own way. And some of those ideas can be empowering and I think have helped flip some reluctant readers into readers. And do you think that it's a more of an uphill battle today getting kids to read? I mean, because you're competing right with the cell phones and the internet and the social media like, it was hard for me to find time to read when I was a kid. I didn't have all that to compete with. Right. I wonder how kids today are going to find time to take even like a half hour a day or whatever and just like put everything on mute and sit there with a book, you know? I've been doing this 13 years professionally, and all of that is post-Harry Potter, right? Ah. I, I fit in that category. I fit very comfortably in the Harry Potter category, probably more comfortably than than most other authors where – my stories feature young main characters, but they're yeah. smart and twisty at kind of an adult level. And the world building is is at an adult level, though the young mm. main characters keep it accessible for kids. And I'm not going out of my way to use difficult language, but I still use pretty rich language. Sure, yeah. Which is all defining that Harry Potter category, right? Uh, and because it fits in that category, I've always had a fairly easy time getting people to pick up my books. It's why my publisher tours me so much. Like, I mean, they pay for that touring, right? Yeah, um, right. And they're they're touring me four months out of the year because I'm successful at getting the people I talk to to pick up the book. And one of the most frequent things I hear, and it's one of the most special things I hear, is I'll have adults come up to me now because I've been doing this for 13 years. And they'll say, your books were the books that turned me into a reader. Your book was that gateway uh... book for me. Right? Like when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade. Yeah. There's there's nothing more special I could hear. For me, that gateway book was Narnia. Um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe oh, yeah. was my, was my totally. gateway to literacy. Like it, until I read that book, I, I didn't get what the fuss was about. Right? And then after I read Shit. it, the big imagination of that story converted me into a reader. And and I've talked to a lot of kids who are now adults as well who, who say my books did that for them. And I think a big part of why is – 
the presentation that I bring, where I make the case for reading. Mm. I make enough of a case that they then do a reading experiment with my book because I was the guy that made the case. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Sure. Okay, I'll give this and a And consequently, my book ends up being the one that flips it <laughs> because I talked a reluctant reader into picking it up. Yeah, yeah, right. Does that make sense? And, I, and I, I'm not kidding that I hear it a lot. And I'm not kidding that it matters to me every time. Like, it, it makes me really, really happy. It feels like something useful has been accomplished. Yeah, something about a series is good for that too, because you can really get into it and read one and then the next and the next and then the next. And then by the time you get through with that series, you're like, well, hey, man, I've been reading now for the past three months and every day and uh, kind of sneaks up on you a little bit if it's, if it's really compelling. Yeah, yeah. And so, and what you're saying there ties into another principle, which is that, you know, we're trying to match up the kid with something they actually want to read, right? Something that they would deliberately read for fun, right? Something that they would read without a grade attached, without an assignment attached. And that's not the easiest thing in the world. But thanks to things like the Lord of the Rings movies and the Harry Potter books, fantasy has a fairly broad reach. Like, like there's a lot of kids where fantasy will reach them. And I mean, it's not just a certain kind of nerdy crowd or something like it might have been, you know, 30 years ago. It, it, it's fairly mainstream and you'll get jocks and you'll get, you know, like band kids and you'll, you just you just get the whole spectrum of kids, right? And, yeah. and that doesn't mean everybody will read fantasy, but it's a nice wide one, right? It, it's got a, a story that's grand enough that can kind of compete with a good TV show or a movie. Especially when you're a younger kid, it's got a story where a young main character is doing amazing things that are, you know, outsmarting adults and stuff. Right. And that's how every sixth grader wants to see themselves, you know. And and then there's some kids that, you know, the key will be maybe a book about sports or there's some kids where the key will be a romance or there's some – you know, there's other – it's not that fantasy is a cure-all, but fantasy does reach broad. I mean, I I just – I do. I, I make a living at this because it reaches broad, you know. Yeah, and it's kind of perfect for young readers because, like you say, it's like you can have the hero who is younger but is equally as powerful because of like some sort of magical abilities that they have. And they just like often are, yeah, using their ingenuity or their smarts to kind of get through like situations with much larger creatures than them. So, yeah, it kind of like has all of that David and Goliath stuff going on. So I wonder, you said Narnia was kind of the series that got you into reading. Is that what made you want to start doing this and writing? Did did you read Narnia and say, oh, this is what I want to do is write this kind of stuff? Or was that more of a slow process for you? It was a little bit of a slower process. My journey looked like this. As a little guy, I love to live in my head. I love to make up stories. Yeah. My parents would peek into my bedroom and they'd catch me like walking around the room and like throwing punches in the air and like just having battles, you know, five years old, (laughs) six years old. And when they would catch me doing that, I would just be so embarrassed, right? Like I'd just be like, oh no, go away, go away. I'd say, I'm playing my games, go away, right? Because I knew it looked dumb, but in my head it was super fun. Yeah, yeah. I was just in the middle of an epic thing and then like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I can't have you looking at me because I know it looks foolish, (laughs) but yeah. But like, yeah, if you leave me be, I'm having a great time. I don't really need anything else. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and that wasn't the only thing I did, but I did do it pretty frequently. Like I had this pretty rich inner life. And in some ways I think at school it even made me kind of a weird kid, right? Because I had this 
a lot going on in my head, right? Right. Oh, yeah, totally. And you've got your parents trying to get you to read. And for a while, they had a hard time with that. And I wasn't the best student. But when I read Narnia, the big imagination uh, of that story, like dovetailed with the way my brain liked to make up stories in Daydream anyway. And so that just upped the amount of daydreaming I did and it directed it toward fantasy. And so I became a fantasy daydreamer after reading Narnia, but I still didn't yeah. know I was going to like write books. I was just doing this because it was fun in my head, right? I see. Okay. As I matured, the stories in my head got cooler and it reached a point where I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> the stuff in my head is better than some of the movies I see and better than some of the books I read. So I want to yeah, share this with people. Yeah. And so I started trying to write it down. And then that was so frustrating because it was really cool in my head and just terrible when I wrote it down, right? <laughs> like everything I wrote down just looked embarrassing. Yeah, it's like a lot harder than it looks, huh? Yeah. And so I learned, you know, okay, there's a craft to this. There's Yeah, exactly. And I, I need to learn how to, how to take what I see in my mind and share it with other people. One author gave me a beautiful metaphor that I'll, I'll be forever grateful for where he said, when the story's in your head, it's like this beautiful flock of butterflies. And then when you write it down, it's sort of like you have to kill that butterfly and pin it and preserve it so that you can share it, uh, right? When you write the story down, you make it much more finite, much more concrete. Yeah, you limit it, right? You reduce right. it to specific words, right? Totally, yeah. But if you can reduce it into the right words and encode it correctly, it can then come to life in someone else's head. They can decode it and, and the butterflies are flying again. Does that make sense? Yeah, right. I mean, that's that, that's getting like metaphorical about it, but I, but it's a fairly good way to say it. And so, what I learned through my teenage years, my young adulthood was, okay, well, if I want to really succeed at this, I need to learn how the how the best people encode their stories, right? I need to learn how to how to use details and scene building to communicate a story in a way a reader can appreciate, where I can, you know, with verbal impressionism paint on somebody's mind. And so I paid attention to how my favorite authors built their scenes. I practiced writing my own scenes and I gradually got better at it. Sure. And, and by the time I was kind of through college, I was determined in my heart to try to succeed at writing, even though I'd, I'd majored in public relations with an English minor. <laughs> well, hey, you know, now here you are doing four months a year of public relations for your books. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, for sure, with with uh, with a writing gig, with a writing job, you wear a marketing hat sometimes. And I worked in entertainment marketing for about five years after college to mm. to pay my bills, right? And and wrote my books on the side. And around age thirty, I was able to to turn writing into my day job. That is really cool. Okay, so uh, if people they listen to this podcast and they're like, hey, wow, this guy sounds great, but man, 15 New York Times bestsellers, where do I even get started? Where should they go to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, if, if you haven't tried my books before, I mean, good places to start are Fablehaven Book One. I have a series called Five Kingdoms. Book One of that's a good one. Or you could start with Dragon Watch Book One. If you're looking for a teen who's really into fantasy that that wants like a meteor, more epic fantasy, my Beyonders series would be the right one for that teen. If you want a little younger and lighter, it would be my Candy Shop War book or my Spirit Animals book I did with Scholastic. And you can find information about all those books at brandonmull.com. Awesome. 
We're here with Brandon Mull talking about literacy, creativity, and expressing yourself. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Story is such a beautiful way to bond with children or to bond with family. As you read fiction together, it gives you context to speak about real-world issues, but from the safe distance of talking about a story. I could create a world that's been made devoid of heroes and watch some young characters try to become heroes in a world that's given up on heroes. And it lets me look at what I think are important real-world issues, but from a safe distance. I mean, one of the main things I'm trying to do, like maybe the main thing I'm trying to do is just give readers a good ride, right? Yeah. Because if I'm trying to tell kids that, you know, reading is good for your imagination and reading will sharpen your mind and build your vocabulary and do all these good things, if I want to succeed to get them to read, I I need to make a good ride, right? So to some degree, what I'm also doing is building roller coasters. You know, I, I want my novels to be a thrill ride that can compete with a movie that can compete with it with with good television, and if I don't do that, it doesn't matter how logical my reasoning is. Like they they won't read it because it's not fun. There's some weight on me to deliver a really good book, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of saying like, here's your proof that reading can be fun, the and if it's not fun, me, yeah. like I, I'm just I'm doing a disservice to everyone. You write these books, you are just alone in a room making up a story. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like like it is just you. And your only compass is what you think is cool or brave or interesting or funny. And and you're trying to, you know, build those things into a story and then hope that there'll be like-minded people who go, yeah, that was brave and interesting and kind of sad and kind of funny and bittersweet or whatever you're trying to do, right? Right. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.